Great, everybody. We'll convene. Um, Rabia sends her apologies. She's not feeling well today. She emailed me an hour or so ago. And Matthew, Matthew's not here yet. <laughs> I won't make excuses for him. And no, his plans changed, and a parishioner lost a child in his church. And he does have excuses, um, sad ones. Uh, so no, he's actually not in Turkey, um, which he was planning to go to for the celebration of Rumi's um, Urs. Urs, which Urs. is his birthday. His death day. His death day, right? His which is marriage day. They call it in Sufism. Marriage, marriage with the beloved. Well, uh-huh. his marriage with the beloved. Um, similarly, uh, um, Jews travel. So this happens at his burial place. Where is it again? In it's in it's in Konya, Konya, Turkey, which is sort of in the middle of Turkey. It's in the middle of Turkey, kind of in the middle of a sort of vast plain. The middle of, in some ways, the middle of nowhere in Turkey. Really? But, but very beautiful. And uh, I was there two years ago for the Urs, and it was really one of the most amazing experiences of my life. <laughs> so here's Matthew, who didn't get to go to what we're disca- describing right now. We're talking about the Urs. The Urs celebration. So for a week beforehand, all of these um, Sufi masters gather, and they bring their huge numbers of their followers. And so there are all night um, prayers, uh, zikrs, uh, uh, chanting of remembrance. And then they sing Allahis. Um, I heard Iranian women singing the Masnavi, Rumi's great masterpiece, um, six-volume masterpiece, um, in, in Persian. Just, and, and this goes on all night long. You can go from one, um, one we, call, we call it zikr hopping, you can go from one zikr to the hopping. other. <laughs> but it was, it was, it's just a very magical, um, wonderful time. And just the music in, in particular is just, Heart, heart-rending. Mm. It's so beautiful and, and such um, devotion. Many, many young people there. Um, you, you can imagine a room full of, um, you know, 20 and 30-something uh, young people singing to God. It was, it was very, very, very moving, very sweet. So before we launch in, uh, uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we start with the chant together? Um, and I asked Matthew, to, who has some nice chance to teach, if he would sure. lead us in one. <clears throat> and, just... and I'll just say, and I'll just say, so we can all arrive here um, and enjoy each other's presence in this room, <sighs> along with everything else that's going on in our world. So let's just take a moment to feel our feet on the floor, ourselves in our seats. To let go of any stress that we've brought with us from the day, from the world. And to turn our attention gently to our breath. 
our breath, which is the breath of God moving through us, God breathing us as we breathe God. One breath that we all share. As you let attention rest in your breath, let it also drop into your heart and into your body, letting your mind still, bringing presence and awareness into your whole incarnate being. chant together, the words of this chant are simply changeless and calm, deep mystery, ever more deeply rooted in thee. <coughs> changeless and calm, deep mystery. <coughs> as many times as you need to and come in when you're ready. Changeless and calm, deep mystery, evermore deeply rooted in Thee. Oh.
May we all be ever more deeply rooted in the one mystery, in the one life, in the one heart that holds us all. May we know ourselves ever more deeply to be that one life and that one heart. May we know that nothing and no one is excluded from that mystery. May we see everyone as its faces, as its hands, as its life, and may we honor them as such. Amen. Susan, you look like you look pensive. <coughs> what's what's behind the the look? Just the chant, mm. moving, moving. Mm. What that feels like, especially the calm part. There's that chant has an extension that we didn't do, and it's a line from one of the Psalms. Jonathan might remember the Psalm number, but it goes. Like a child on its mother's breast, my spirit is quieted within me. Wow. Angels and calm. Oh, that's nice. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember the no, song? No, I don't know where the, which psalm <laughs> number that. <clears throat> my impulse, um, since the the uh, uh, since this anniversary, this yard site in the Jewish tradition, which means the anniversary of a death. Uh, Jews also don't mark birthdays uh, in our tradition. We generally remember people on their the anniversary of their death if they've passed on. Um, and so, um, on um, so to make a pilgrimage to the mystic, the saint, the founder's grave is a tradition that crosses a lot, a practice that crosses a lot of traditions. So I imagine thousands of people go there. Tens of thousands? Tens of thousands. Uh, anybody familiar with uh, Lagba Omer in Israel? Lagba Omer, it means the 33rd day of the Omer. It takes place in between Passover and Shavuot in May. And the 33rd day of the Omer in Jewish tradition is the day of death of uh, Shimon Bar Yochai, who is the hero and considered founder of Kabbalah, of Jewish mystical practice. And he is, his, his, um, his purport, he lived in the second century. His purported tomb, but at this point we know, oh, I'll tell you more about this. I went on Sunday to the exhibit at the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art on uh, <laughs> Jerusalem, uh, 1100 to 1400, and saw all these reliquaries, which are special fancy boxes and cases that people created to hold relics, often wood from the cross, uh, wood that's supposed to have come from Jesus' cross. 
it was one big cross, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, but the point is, is that the actual origin of the relic or the veracity of the burial place becomes unimportant. It might be the burial place, and it might not be. Shimon, Once it's so charged with the devotion and the prayer and the energy of pilgrimage, who cares where it came from? <laughs> and so on Mount Meron, which is the highest mountain in the Galilee, it's beautiful, it's 4,000 feet high, near, next, across a valley from Tzfat, is the tomb of Shimon Bar Yochai. And on the 33rd day of the Omer, Lagba Omer, uh, hundreds of thousands of Israelis make their way there for a night of um, bonfires and ecstatic praying and uh, uh, kids from the ultra-Orthodox world and elsewhere, <laughs> boys who are three years old, haven't had a haircut. They traditionally get their first haircut there. There's, it's really... You know, I've never gone because the traffic was impossible. And I decided I'd imagine it because it was like, it was impossible. I've been there for a long time. But it sounds very similar. And there are many, many secular Israelis. In other words, they're not Orthodox by practice, but they may be spiritually oriented. And then many Israelis who just want to have a good time who like to just want to party, everybody makes their way up there. That's a classic kind of pilgrimage, isn't it? Uh, where you have, it's, a, it's both a spiritual um, destination and a circus all at the same time. I don't know if Rumi's is like that, but uh, it feels that way when I, around the one in Israel. Um, well, it's in December, so it's a little harder to... It's a little harder? A little harder to be outside. It, 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 it does seem to have... Uh, um, mostly, at least the parts I were in, it's a mostly spiritual focus. Well, I can imagine because it's also sort of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Hard to get to. You really have to want to get there. Uh, similarly, uh, the tomb of Reb Nachman of Bratslav, who was a, a, uh, a astonishing spiritual uh, 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 master in the late, uh, who died in 1810, his grave is also the site of annual pilgrimage, as is the grave of the Baal Shem Tov. Mm -hmm. Here in the U.S., the where, Lubavitch... Where is the Baal Shem Tov? Oh, the Baal Shem Tov is in... Um, Mezrich. Mezrich. So which was Poland. Poland. Here, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who died 20 years ago now, uh, or... There you go. 22, 24. Am I right? Like yeah. That. Uh, he's buried in Brooklyn. And that... Real, there's a lot of people streaming there to get the energy of the saint, you know, in their pilgrimage. It is amazing, isn't it? And of course, there are so many Christian pilgrimage sites. Uh, well, and to, yesterday um, was the feast day of Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, one of the apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Mexico. And so pilgrims have been making their way up Mount Tepeyac, which is the holy mountain. Uh, where she appeared to Blessed Juan Diego. And if, if you know the story, <clears throat> this is when uh, the conquistadors had come in and they were, they were brutally uh, oppressing the native indigenous peoples. Um, one of the bishops bragged that he had overseen the destruction of five, I think 5,000, maybe 500 uh, native temples, sacred shrines. And <clears throat> 
it's during the midst of this oppression that uh, on the site of uh, a shrine to the great mother in the indigenous tradition, um, to the, the divine feminine, um, the site where this uh, sacred shrine had been destroyed, the divine feminine in the face of Mary appears to Juan Diego and says, uh, my, my, my most, uh, how does she say it? my most dignified one, most elevated one, and these are people who are being treated in the most undignified way, my most dignified one. Um, <clears throat> she appears and says, I want you to um, build my shrine, build my temple here on this mountain, and take this story to the bishop and let him know. And so he goes to the bishop, and of course the bishop doesn't believe the, the uneducated indigenous man, and says, we'll come back with a sign if this is true. So he returns to the mountain and she appears again and she says, take these roses. And there are roses blossoming on the hill out of season in December. And so he takes these roses and he gathers them in his tilma, in his robe, and he carries them to the bishop. And when he <clears throat> comes before him, he drops the robe and the roses spill to the ground and on the tilma appears the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And if you've seen this image... And this it, is in Mexico? This is in Mexico. It, it incorporates... Um, religious symbolism from the indigenous tradition, from the native traditions. Um, the, the colors, the symbols um, integrated into this image of Mary as a brown indigenous woman. And so the story is believed and the, the shrine is built there to her and it becomes a pilgrimage site and she becomes, this apparition of Mary becomes the patron of the Americas. Um, so uh, yesterday was an important day in the Christian calendar, uh, particularly um, for the native peoples in this country who, who practice their spirituality through Christianity. And it's such a beautiful story because rather than she manifests herself um, not in opposition to the native traditions, but through the symbols and images, which is the exact opposite of what the conquistadors were doing. They were stamping them out. Um, uh, and it's true to the spirit of Mary herself. She was an indigenous brown woman living under brutal Roman occupation, of course. And um, in the Christian calendar on Sunday, it was the third Sunday of Advent, which uh, Advent is the season of preparation for Christmas. And uh, a candle is lit in each of the four weeks. And the third week, the other candles are purple. The third week, there's a pink candle. It's the really? ro yes. Um, no, I just made it up. No, I, <laughs> I knew about the candles. I didn't so, know about the colors. So the, the, the third candle is called the rose candle, and it's sometimes associated with Mary, who is called the mystical rose. And uh, it's, it's called Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete means um, rejoice in Latin, because it's the Sunday at the midway point in the season of Advent when you've turned the corner towards the coming of the light um, at Christmas. Uh, and so on that Sunday, Mary's song, the Magnificat, which is a text in Luke's gospel, where she says, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for you have looked with favor on your lowly handmaiden. Um, you have cast down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. The rich you have sent away empty and the hungry you have filled with good things. So it's this vision of a reversal of the social order and a reversal of Roman occupation and oppression. Um, so she appears with that same spirit to Juan Diego um, as an oppressed person in the Americas. Anyway, so this week is a beautiful week across these traditions. I'm not sure if, is there a Jewish observance this week? 
Uh, no, we're we're in the we're in this sort of fallow part, waiting for Hanukkah. Okay. So no, it's seriously fallow. It's it's the the Jewish holiday season is designed so that in the around the fall equinox we have all that stream of holidays, and then there's a break until Hanukkah. So um, we don't have. So we I remember we talked about that the 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 build up to Christmas in Christian holy time is comparable to the build up to to uh, the Jewish New Year in the fall, but they're at different times of the year. Right, right, right. Um, and did, Karuna, did you mention the Malad of the Prophet? No, I didn't. So, well, well okay. Sunday night, the 11th, is the, the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. It is? Um, yes. What, what so, month is that? Well, but, well, and there's a solar and a lunar observance. But, right, that's oh, what okay. I'm confused yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, because... Lunar calendar. Well, so uh, put your the that part of your brain on. Um, there's a solar cycle to the year we discussed in an earlier class. It's 365 days and a quarter, and by following it, we follow the solar cycle, meaning the solstices and the equinox. There's a lunar cycle of the calendar which follows 12 lunar months. Each lunar month is 29 and a half days. So the lunar year is 354 days long. That means that a lunar year, and forgive me for the people who've heard this a million times, that means that a lunar year is 11 days shorter than a solar year. The Christians follow, with the exception of Easter, which is still left, lunar. Which is left over from the lunar calendar, a solar calendar. Almost strictly, except for Easter. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So everything shifts. Easter is the one major lunar observance, and of course, it's tied to Passover. And right. so, as it moves, all the other major Christian holidays after Christmas essentially have to shift around it. So Lent shifts, Pentecost shifts, everything shifts uh, around Easter. But the solar holidays, like Christmas, it's just tied in. It's always the twenty-fifth of the solar year. Right. Uh, the um, Muslim calendar is a lunar calendar, and we discussed this before, so that, remember you were hearing about how uh, the month of Ramadan, the month of fasting, it's going to retreat 11 days every year. So the year, so in the course of, what is it, 33 years or something like that? Something like that. Something like that. Ramadan will come back around to where it was on the solar cycle. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. And so the, um, uh, the Islamic holidays are not seasonally based. They're not nature-based ho- holidays in terms of the cycle of the year. The Jewish calendar is an hy- ancient hybrid of lunar and solar. We, the Jewish months follow the moon. Uh, um, and... Because we were ag- originally an agricultural tradition, land-based, uh, in the land of Israel, um, our spring holidays and our fall holidays want to be in the spring and fall because they're harvest holidays and they're planting holidays. And so a careful, cal- a careful complicated calibration was made so that leap months are added occasionally to the Jewish year to push everything back so that it stays around its season. 
And so the Jewish holidays, next year, the Jewish holidays are going to be 11 days earlier than they were this year. The year after that, they're going to be 11 days earlier on the solar calendar. And then next year, we're having a leap year to push it back up so that we can keep our spring holidays in the spring, our fall holidays in the fall, and our winter holiday, Hanukkah, as close to the solstice as we can. Um, so it's a complicated calendar, but whenever you wonder why the Jewish holidays move around on the Gregorian calendar, it's because of that. Does that make sense, everybody? Right. It's always worth explaining again. I do think the, the, the Muslim New Year, though, is solar. Muslim New Year is always on the first day of spring, so that's solar. Uh, can you answer that, Karuna? Um, I know that in certain Muslim countries, Iran. They're, they're like yes. Iran, Nehruz, I think it is. Yes. I, I, don't, I think that was originally a Zoroastrian holiday, and I, they still celebrate it in on. Muslim countries. <laughs> but I, 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 I know I have Muslim reason. friends who celebrate New Year every every. Yeah. When the solstice is springtime, that's their New Year's. Yeah, I mean, Which I think I, is a great time for New Year's, by the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, by the way, that is also the, the most ancient Jewish New Year, Passover. Passover is considered the first month of the year, and it gets complicated because the seventh month is the other New Year. But <laughs> you can't have too many New Years. <laughs> so, so then there is some intrusion of seasonal celebrations into the Muslim calendar. But it doesn't occupy a dedicated date on the Muslim calendar in terms of this day of this month. Whereas every Jewish holiday is always going to be on the same date of the Jewish calendar. No, I never thought of this before, but um, it does seem like the Urs celebrations follow a solar Gregorian calendar. Because right, Rumi's Urs is always on the 17th. Right, the death anniversaries do seem to be locked in on. Yeah, yeah. it's. And uh, I never, that never that's even very interesting. Me right. Even though the holy days are journeying all the time. Yes. But others are fixed on. Okay, well, it's complicated. Uh, especially a calendar like the. For a, peop, for, for a religion like Islam that spreads so far around the world, there, there must be a lot of adopting of other. Yeah. Other practices and customs. Well, and I think that's where Nehru's comes in. The, the the New Year celebration is celebrated in many of the, I think, more Central Asian and um, uh, Ir Persian countries. Is you know, there's very definitely a holiday, and I know there was some pushback for a while in in um, per the per Persia when it became Islamic, but that it, it was such a strong impulse that, you know, it right. was such a strong cultural impulse. It makes sense. And they, Celebrate. And they have this routine where they go down to the water, the beach or a lake, and they jump over fires. Mm -hmm. So that's yeah. totally Zoroastrian. Yes, yeah. That's Zoroastrian, yes. the little I know about it. Yes. Well, good holidays die hard. <laughs> and, well, and I think most of, I think if you look at most of the um, Christian holidays, they will have some root, they're deeply rooted in... Right, either these. Jewish or pagan. Exactly. <laughs> right. Just like holy places keep their, keep their uh, charge, unless the civilization is destroyed and forgotten, so that the site of um, the holy, Jewish holy temple 
is considered to be, isn't that site is going to get a mosque built on it because it's a powerful site, just like a holy day is going to be repurposed for a new cultural or religious configuration. Just like Mount Tepeyac in Mexico is dedicated to the Great Mother in the indigenous tradition, so of course that gets smashed out and what happens? It gets dedicated to the Virgin Mary, you know, and it right. remains this essentially the same sacred site. Right. Yeah. Where it's, yeah. There is no, there is no pure tradition, cultural or religious. There just isn't. This is, this is something that I, I, I've been wanting to address too in the classes, the sense of um, when we talk about all of these traditions, that we're clear that there is no pure anything, no pure Islam, Judaism, Christianity, that they are evolving traditions. And it's much more accurate to talk about Islams and Judaisms and Christianities. And that they have been evolving from the beginning and they have not yet reached a final crystallized form. And often we think, well, they're done. Now we have Judaism and we have Islam and we have Christianity. The reality is that as humanity continues evolving, the humans who express their spirituality through those traditions will continue evolving the traditions. Um, and the idea that there was ever a pure version of any of them just take a minute to look at any of their histories. Of course, you know, early Israelite religion goes into exile in Babylon and picks up elements from that. And, you know, it's, it's continually evolving and shifting. Christianity is birthed out of that and then moves out into Greco-Roman territory and picks up elements of that. Islam picks up elements out of Christianity, Judaism, Zoroastrianism. Um, Buddhism is born out of Hinduism, and then it goes over to East Asia, and it merges with Taoism and produces Zen. Our religions have always been um, interacting with each other and evolving and re-expressing themselves in new contexts. So part of what we're doing is saying, how do we continue expressing the living streams of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity in our context? Um, not assuming that these religions are done. Um, but that they're still unfolding through all of us gathered here. Thank you. That was well said. Uh, thank you. Yeah. To, I want to get back to the particular for a second, Jeff. Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, just picking up on the great hybridization and synchronization that you just mentioned. The planet also goes through that. Yeah. I'm speaking right. purely planetarily. That there really are no such things as wilderness areas because of the air and the currents and so forth. The planet is constantly adopting also. So to try to get to some fixed time and place of the past is really impossible. We have to keep adjusting to the current years. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank Hybridization is, is a natural thing. As species migrate and shift and, yeah, it's right. just and always been happening. And we see it happening today in our marriages, with interfaith marriages, on our menus with fusion cuisine. You know, there's an Asian-Mexican grill in Kingston. Um, you know, and of course if it happens in our marriages and on our menus, then it's going to happen with our religions. Oh boy, one of my favorite Pete, <laughs> one of my favorite Pete Seeger songs is called All Mixed Up. <laughs> about how the world's all getting all mixed up. Um, there's a, there's a, a similar um, trope in um, ecology, which is the invasive species, mm -hmm. which is, you know, in many ways, a species that moves in opportunistically to a place where 
mainly human beings have created a, a niche that needs to be filled. And yet people are, you know, taking up pesticides and axes and hammers to try to get rid of them and, and without looking at the bigger picture. And I think, I think it's a good metaphor for, you know, what goes on in culturally and religiously. Thank you. Um, so the next Jewish holiday that comes up, I wanted to finish that yeah. thought, is Hanukkah, which falls on the 25th of the Hebrew month of Kislev. Each Hebrew month has a name. Those names happen to originate in Babylonia. They're ba ancient the ancient Babylonian names of months. So the, the, even the Jewish calendar was orig originates some, somewhere else. Uh, but the 25th of Kislev, which is so strangely sim similar to the 25th of December, right? Uh, except that it's on a lunar calendar. And the 25th of a lunar month is when the moon has waned. Mm -hmm. And so when the sun goes down, there's no moon. Except it'll rise at three in the morning or so. So the 25th of Kislev is the dark of the moon. And Hanukkah is calibrated to always fall on the 25th of Kislev, closest, which is the dark of the moon closest to the winter solstice. So that Hanukkah falls on the longest and darkest nights of the year. Not the longest necessarily, but the longest and darkest. And again, I don't think that's a Jewish invention. I think that was adopted and adapted from previous lunar-based uh, 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 calendars and societies. Um, so oddly, because of the oscillations of the lunar cycle versus the solar cycle as the fixed cycle, um, uh, Hanukkah falls on Christmas Eve this year, the 25th of Kislev, because the Jewish day begins at sundown and the 25th of December <laughs> coincide. I, I just can't remember when yeah, I, I, remember the last time I can't remember the last time that happened. Huh. Well, four, 13 years ago, Hanukkah was around Christmas. Was around Christmas. It, it I just can't remember when Hanukkah and Christmas started at the same time. That's all. I just can't. Which is an interesting accident. Um, Does it start on the, the 24th, Christmas yes. Eve? Christmas Eve, but the Jewish day begins at sundown. Yes. That's on the 24th. <laughs> on the 24th. Which so, is when Christmas begins, yes. technically, too. Right, yeah. right. right. The, the 25th of Kislev begins at sundown mm -hmm. and will continue until the next sundown when it becomes the 26th. So again, the Jewish calendar is hard to read on a secular calendar because the... I've, I've tried to visualize how I could make it an acetate overlay or something so you could actually like see them both at the same time rather than say, but wait, it's not, what? Because the Jewish day is from sundown to sundown. It's not from midnight to midnight, if you, if you could see what I mean. But that's another story. We, we talked about this in the last class series too, that Christianity inherited that same manner of time measure, measurement from Judaism. And so Christian feast days begin the eve the night before at, at what's called first vespers. So you would have first vespers of Christmas, which is sundown the day before, and then second vespers of Christmas, sundown the next day. Um, and so that's traditionally how Christians continue to measure time. Of course, it's sort of given way to secular measurements of time 
and is really best preserved in monastic communities that still observe first vespers of major feast days. And, and you see that, that the day starts with sundown. Does anyone know when midnight became the standard? I don't even know. Cats. Cats? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Karuna, what's your impulse to, for where to go now? Because we had a lot of ideas. And... I'd love to do some poetry. or yeah, I mean, I think that would be great. You, you brought some? I brought, I brought some. some. And also, Matthew, one, one of the other things I wondered, from memory. one of the other things I wondered was if, whether people had questions that were brewing from the last couple of classes. That's a great idea. Why don't we start with that, <clears throat> Martha? Well, um, I I think I'm having a conceptual difficulty with Islam. Is there a body of law that is written down that's comparable to the Talmud, in which? Um, Lots of people gave opinions, something evolves from it. Uh, I'm not even sure what question I'm asking here, but mm -hmm. I, there's something I'm not getting. There is, it's, um, and it's what's known as Sharia law. Um, there are different schools of Sharia law. I don't know that there's an actual book called, like, the Talmud? The no, same? but also the Talmud is not Jewish law either. Right. The Talmud is just one, one iteration of Jewish law that keeps getting developed and developed. There, are four, there were four basic schools of law in the Sunni tradition. There are other Shia traditions. It's a very uh, complex, um, complicated um, uh, body of work, mostly in Arabic. And, uh, what? Evolving? Evol no, you know, it's interesting because what at a certain point, um, it, the, they closed down the interpretive ability. And, and it's evolving in some senses, but as a, as a theory that it should evolve, there was a closure in the 12th century. And they say the... the um, the doors of, it's called ijahad, the doors of um, uh, interpretation were closed at a certain point. And so what remains in these, particularly in the Sunni tradition, which is the bulk of um, Muslim countries, um, I'm not particularly well versed in the ins and outs of Sharia law. It wasn't of particular, particular interest to me. Um, in some countries, they use versions of it. I know in Pakistan, um, in but it's it's not it's not codified, and it's and it and it really changes from country to country, from culture to culture, from tradition to tradition. So there's nothing um, universal. There's nothing universal. Well, Isn't the I, uh, I I think let me let me say something, Jay. I think tell me if I'm on the right track. Mm -hmm. Karuna, from what you know, mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a real parallel between Islamic law and Jewish law, and also important differences. Um, just as the Torah, you cannot read the Torah, and as like a rule book, it has a lot of rules in it, but some of them are so general as to you have to then apply them and interpret them. Others, 
in the Torah, you will actually find contradictions from one place in the Torah to the other. And you have to either harmonize those contradictions or determine which one's going to uh, take you forward. So, again, the Torah is not a systematic law code. The Torah is a vast collection of stories, pronouncements, rules, poetry, legends, right? So as the Torah becomes authoritative in Jewish life, a whole interpretive class of Jews known as rabbis have to emerge in order to try to determine from the document of the Torah what the ruling is. And that body of interpretation, which includes the Talmud and then continues to expand after that, is known as halacha, Jewish law. Halacha doesn't mean law, however. Halacha means the way. Now, that's like tariqa in um, uh, Islam, I believe. Well, yes, in one iteration. Sharia also is the the broad way. The way. It's comparable. In other words, it's so, and that way. Now, now, Jews long ago had to face the the difficulty of having having a primary source, the Torah, that could be interpreted in countless ways. Eventually, a consensus emerges, sort of. Um, that is known as halacha or Jewish law. It's a living tradition, but it's also a very conservative tradition, right? To change takes a lot of precedent until the modern era when new approaches to our religious heritage emerge, and so not all religious Jews anymore accept the authority of halacha. Right? I personally use it as a guide, but not as a mandate. Okay, so my understanding is that the Quran also is not, is, as, as Karuna explained a few weeks ago, is, is not an organized text from which you can discern what you're supposed to do. It's a collection of, um, of utterances that were given in different contexts, to different people in different situations and then collect it into a holy book. So then it, I believe Muslims face the same difficulty of how to develop your way of li- Muslim way of life out of your holy text. And so they bring in all these oral traditions called the hadiths that some have more authority than others and they compare and contrast them to the Quran and they have they have a legal system and a way of jurisprudence and a way of interpretation, just like the Jewish tradition does. It's not a random activity. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's Tinkerbell. <laughs> uh, it's not a random activity, but it sounds like a difference. Even though Jewish law was very conservative, it remained in some fundamental way open to the next generation's legal giants. And uh, uh, it's uh, it, Would you say, Lenore? Yeah, I, I, I was just—I may have gotten a little ahead of you. <clears throat> so my understanding is, to follow on what you're saying, is what evolves. I know in Sunnah are the four great judges or the four great schools, like Hanaf. When you think about Hanbali, Hanafi, um, 
people were talking about, they were judges. They were um, heads of schools. They did this sort of that similar thing that you're Heads of academies, about. as exactly. it were. And so there was certain emphasis in certain ways of understanding Sharia or Hadith or however one was going to practice. And so those are the four main schools. So what happens when you think of Wahhab or Salah, they were actually individuals. Again, judges, learned individuals that were head of particular schools who then reinterpret or re-understand. Or, re or emphasize. Emphasize, whatever that may have been. So that's how that came about. And very, very early on, I think there were, I mean, there were a number of different sort of speci specialities that emerged very soon after the Prophet did. The first was the Hadith. And so some people really just focused on collecting Hadith, transmitting Hadith. There was this whole arc arcane system of deciding whether a Hadith was sound or not that had to do with who said it and what the link of the chain was. And then there are people who are actually focused on laws, on deriving laws from the, and, and that's a slightly different discipline. Um, then there were the people who were um, uh, doing a mystical tradition out of the teachings of the prophet. And they all sort of emerged at the same time, very shortly after the prophet's um, uh, uh, you know, death, there, there are, there are um, at least according to the Hadith, there are people who are pursuing all of these different um, avenues. So, so there's a flourishing, and then you say, in, in, and, and uh, it, it again leaves the question, but also that in the 12th century, some consensus understanding emerged that uh, the, the, that the body of work was now closed. And, and there's a lot of more progressive Muslims who, uh, who disagree with that. I'm not saying... It, it, but that's one of the questions but, I wanted to ask yeah. you. Yeah. So w does that gain um, currency among most of Islam, that idea? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say most of Islam. I, you know, I, it's, it, it's such a vast right. and very fragmented um, mm -hmm. system now. I mean... Amongst the you know the dominant voices in Islam and Islamic law seem to be the you know, more conservative voices at mm -hmm. this point, um, and I there's one really I think there's one very interesting thing about say Quranic studies or studies of Hadith right, uh, or studies of all of these things and that is that there's been very little actual scholarship done on the Quran in terms of Western scholarship. Textual, higher criticism, yes. textual criticism. There's very little of that going. And for example, there, I, I, I read an essay in graduate school where they took, took a um, surah and looked at the Syrian influence of Syria's hymnic. The man wrote under an assumed name because it's dangerous in the Islamic world in, in, as it's configured now to do this kind of... <coughs> Contextual criticism. This is the particularly around the Quran. The Quran is seen as the word of God by many Muslims in a very pure sense. You don't you don't alter a jot or a tittle of it. You don't mess with it. You all. don't mess with it. And so the scholarly community has been both reluctant and um, well. And the other interesting thing about it is that the text itself 
was any variants on the text were expunged in the by by the third by the third caliph Uthman. Um, he gathered every variant text and destroyed them. And so that there's one authoritative. There is really, and, and even they recently discovered a, a, an early Quran, I believe in Yemen, and it was quite, there was very little, almost no variation in the text. The text of the Quran is very, very rigidly standardized. and standardized. There may be other discoveries in libraries somewhere that, you know, but at this point, there's only one, there's only one text, unlike other, you know, ancient documents. So that brings up the question for me, something that we ask so much, and I know this is heading in, this seems important to all of us, even though it's not necessarily the direction we were going to start in, which is that, um, uh, Judaism, for example, has had 200 Jews, I should say, have had 200 years, 250 years, uh, to break out of that mold because of the context of the Western societies that we live in that, that embraced modernism and, criti and critical uh, scholarship. Uh, now, parts of the Jewish world resisted that. And what we call the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world resists any of these um, uh, uh, approaches. But to uh, uh, give ourselves the authority to critique, to uh, actively engage with, to study history, to compare ancient texts and see how they vary, to, um, and we find our adherence, I'll speak for myself, but I and my, uh, I and my colleagues too, Judaism not then therefore dependent on a one unalterable scripture and interpretation, but on our engagement with this vibrant tradition. That's which has plenty good enough for me. But and that's true in Western Christianity too, and in, in, in much of Christianity. So uh, what's the state of that kind of engagement that you were, say, doing in graduate school in the Muslim world now? Well, it's happening. It's happening slowly. There's some people That's what I need you all to hear, yeah. um, that it's not not happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? But it's also not happening as much. And yeah. I think Matthew studied with someone. Um, there's a book that I put on the bibliography list. Um, you studied with Carl Ernst, didn't you? Um, there are people who are trying to look at the Quran in very different ways. Um, and you know there there definitely has been scholarship done, but it's been done um, carefully and with um, and as I say, the one person who's, whose essay I read wrote under an assumed name. I'm assuming it was a German academic. Um, they do a lot of that sort of work, but we, you don't know who who it is because they didn't want you. You know, it can be dangerous. To that's in what, this that's situation. what I don't understand, why it could be so dangerous and life-threatening in the... Wait, talk a little louder, Bob. Why it should be so dangerous and life-threatening in the Muslim world, whereas in, in the Jewish world and the Christian world, you can criticize and, and, and although you can you condemn... <laughs> that's, that's thanks to secular modernity, though. Yeah, Christians and, and Jews 
we used to put people on trial for blasphemy in both of our traditions. Spinoza we've, got we've excommunicated. We've stoned and burned and killed because of yes. heresy. But we're in the and, 21st century. Uh, right, so the Western European model of enlightenment, of modernity, and then subsequently post-modernity, took hold in Western European lands and then in North America. Um, and most of the advances that we've made haven't been thanks to Jews or Christians. They've been thanks to secular modernists who, who we, we often like to sort of, I think, pat ourselves on the back and say, well, Christianity and Judaism, we're so much more progressive. Actually, no, we're not. We, the progressive values we now have have come from secularity. You know, we have secularity to think in large part. From the societies in which we've been raised, and, and therefore we embrace those values with our uh, uh, mother's milk, as it were. Right. And, and also, don't forget, we, there's a huge history of colonialism, and, and, and the reaction to colonialism um, in, in, right. in, turn, in the Middle East, and, and um, you know, the sucking out the resources of these areas. And so they, they don't, there's not a lot of, um, so you see the rise of these fundamentalist um, ideas as, as a response to, the, to, to oppression right. in, in some senses, in response to, um, you know, the reaction against people who are, you know, I mean, just think of the first Iraq war. Or, or the second Iraq war, where you know you go into a country, you say, oh, you've got mass weapons of mass destruction, and turns out they didn't. And yet, did anybody apologize? Did anyone say sorry about that? No. You know, it's it if you if you think, and that just ha that happened over and over again. I mean, it's not that's just one you know recent example, but you know the the empires of the and and not that Islam is. Free, free of, I mean, they, they, they had an empire too. I'm not, it's not a, I'm not point, trying to point the finger at any one group. I'm saying this is the response. This, this lack of appreciation of Western values has, a, has reason. There are reasons for that. And the Islams that are growing up in Western pluralistic society are also pluralistic and progressive. You know, the, the, that's more recent. Develop, it's a more recent development, but we see very pluralistic, um, progressive schools of thought within Islam, and Muslims who are calling to reopen the gates of ijtihad. Yes. Um, oh, so, that's very interesting. Uh, so that closing down of you know critical inquiry, um, the closing of the gates of ijtihad in the 12th century. There's a push to uh, among progressive Western Muslims to reopen that, and a, a lot of the questions. Ijtihad. Ijtihad. Yeah. Probably I J T I H A D. Ij T Hod, yes. Ij I J. It's the same root as um, jihad. Striving, right? Striving, yes. Yeah, but I don't. I don't think it's. Uh, if, if I could just um, take it from a different angle, it's not Western values. Let's talk about humanity values that you cut across all human beings. Okay. And if you have, and if you draw. All right. Now, we're able to see who's, the global who's we, white man? We have a problem when we declare our values, which I love my values, wait, 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 as universal, Jay. The idea of universal human rights and values is a recent idea, though. You know? The Declaration of Universal Human Rights is the gift of... Go ahead. You said you, 
you based your your argument on Western values that have integrated Christianity and, and, and uh, Judaism? Secular humanism. Yeah, yeah secular. so secular, secular human, post-enlightenment. Secular. And somehow you somehow not justifying but saying, okay, the Muslims have not yet caught up to that. Well, they haven't done it. What, no matter how you want to position it. Right. But Let's why? remember how ill-informed we all are. But, but, but continue, let yeah. Me, let me Finish your point. thought. Okay, let me just give three examples. Right, drawing a picture of, of Muhammad, and that's the death penalty, that, that, that has to be um, um, looked at as, as a human quality, not as a Western quality. Um, 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 this, this Sunday, as you know, there was it, was it was Muhammad's death, and 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 it was a killing of, of twenty five Christians in that church in Cairo. That, in Cairo, that you probably visited. That's not a Western thing. That's a human thing. There is a ethical core in all of us, and that ethical core is what I'm talking about. And I think it has nothing to do with religion. A lot of us are born with that ethical core. We don't need a commandment, "Thou shalt not kill." We know from our own moral ethics, it's just not a thing you do. So my premise is, and, and, and there was a lot of reaction when I said it's a human thing. I'm talking about the conscience and the morals and the ethics that cuts across humanity. Now, I would like to, to see some kind of argument. Okay, just uh, the one thing I want to say there is to be able to think globally and pluralistically is a recent development in, in the evolution of human consciousness. Most human beings, for most of our history, have thought tribally, not globally. That's correct. Um, you know, have thought in terms of, of tribal divisions, be they national, religious, whatever they are. And so you want to protect yours. And, and you can kill everyone else. So the ability to start thinking in terms of universal humanity, um, mm -hmm. it, it's pretty recent for most of us to be able to think in terms of universal humanity. Um, hold on a second. Joan's been waiting for a very long time to say something. Well, I, the question has evolved several times since I Well, okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'd like to see if we can channel or somehow couch this conversation located within... Uh, shall we say, uh, intellectual or theological base as opposed to the political populist base that we kind of tend to ramble around uh, because we're going to end up with all these answers, all these uh, comments. Um, they're going to sort of fray off into what very small groups think, whereas I'm asking, I would like to ask if we can uh, characterize the theological base and or schools of thought that might yeah. be uh, more programmatic or more intellectually organized for each of the religions. If we could, you know, just, if each of you could kind of speak to that so that uh, we're not just talking about some lunatic group in some era that said this. Um, is, is there a stream of thought that each of you could kind of help us focus on? <laughs> Thank you, that was beautifully expressed. Let's take a deep breath and see if we can do it. I want to make a large comment, which is that as Matthew said, the, the idea that we can all get along 
globally is such a young idea. Maybe prior to that, the idea of getting along might involve not messing with each other. Staying on, on the proper sides of our lines. But now, willy-nilly, the modern era has forced us into a different level of, that's being asked of us beyond our tribal impulses. Those impulses run so deep that secular modernists are part of their own tribe a lot of the time and do not understand or appreciate other possible ways of perceiving the situation because we assume that our values are universal. Now, I love secular humanism and I think it is one of the answers moving forward in our world. But the arrogance that comes along with it. If there were Muslims in the room, besides Karuna, who's, who's grown up in this society, how they might react to you um, and tell you all the stories of Western atrocities that have destroyed their cultures over and over again through colonialism and all of our superior um, uh, triumphalist, we're the best, we're the light of civilization, and we are going to extract all of your resources. And that so, have mocked and beat down and demonized their religion, and so, mocked and so demonized saying, their prophet. What I'm saying is not to tell you that I disagree, that I don't think the values of secular humanism are really, I'm totally in favor of them, uh, in terms of how we're going to get by in this world. But the fact that secular humanists form a tribe that is not able frequently to understand, let alone stand in, the, to stand in the place of the people who have been basically knocked to shit by us since the emergence of the modern era. And I'm saying us because I've made it into this category at this moment in time, um, uh, is where we run into problems with, with, with the way you make pronouncements as Joan said, by singling out, and look what happened in this church here, and look what happened there. So I hope you don't take that as a dismissal, because it's not. No, I understand. Okay, good, good, good. So having said that, um, I still, and I guess I'm going to say, say a little more, because you know I wrote a piece about our Muslim brothers and sisters that was my email last Friday. Mm -hmm. Perhaps some of you read it if you're on the email list, uh, based on what I'm learning from this class. And... I put it on Facebook, and I got some very thoughtful and interesting responses about, and one response was one kind of modern secularist response, which was that you can't judge the Wahhabis and Salafis, who are the ones who are promoting cults of death in certain ways. And, and I wrote back and I said, you know, I, even if I disagree with another culture's practice, if that's how they want to practice their culture, that's how they want to practice their culture. It's when a particular intolerant version of either politics, political ideology, and or religious ideology gains the reins of state power that I feel it's my duty to speak out against. And uh, not to, as one of the commenters said, stay in my own lane. You know, because it's one thing when people live in their own group according to the ideology by which they wish to live. Uh, it's another thing when they gain the reins of state power or through terrorism gain other means of enforcing themselves on other people. That I stand against. 
And so we're faced with this very complex, it's like an understatement right now. I don't know what the right word is. Um, but still, we have to find our moral centers, just like you say, stand up for what we believe in, and at the same time, do it in a way that doesn't, that, that, that is, that we mind our own arrogance. That's what I wanted to say about all that. Um, so, thanks for letting me say that. So now, why don't we, uh, do either of you want to add anything at this moment? No, I think you said it well. Okay, because it's really complicated. It is. So I want to go around, uh, and I see hands. Let me see the hands I saw again. Uh, Kathy and Rich, Patricia, Harris. Kathy. Kathy, Kathy yes. I've been reading a book called A Short History of Islam. A Short History of Islam. Yeah, and it, it, it's available on audiobooks if anybody's interested. But am I misunderstanding that part of what Muhammad did, that there is an integration of politics and religion that is intrinsic to Islam, that the perfecting of the society and the way in which it is mercantile and, and organized, <coughs> the way that it, it moves forward is, is part of what Muhammad did. And that he, in fact, my understanding is that he was able to bring peace to the tribes in a way that had never really happened before. I think that is a major difference between um, Islam and particularly Christianity, although less iteration... So <laughs> right, less so Judaism. But I, I think that the ideal leader in um, Islam is seen Muhammad was definitely a politician, and he, he definitely worked to bring peace, to bring alliances with people, and that that has been an ideal um, in Islam, and ha has provided, um, it's certainly in the early parts of the Islamic history, that you know, the, a unified, um, centralized government was part of the Islamic empire. Um, and it spread, I mean, it happened so fast. In, in a hundred years after the, the death of Muhammad, Islam reached from Spain to China. Um, you know, there was, a, there was just a huge swath of um, combination of con conquest and also, it, not so much even conquest, but there was a big vacuum. The Byzantine and the Persian empires had collapsed and there was just no government in many places and so it's very easy for this, you know, new in inspire, inspired um, uh, uh, tribal uh, culture to move through vast amounts of territory. So, the, and then, and I think that's also one of the, pain, the things that is most painful to Muslims nowadays because in some ways the success of Islam and the success of um, you know is is in in some ways based on not just spiritual but on a political success and so the fall of the is Islamic world um, empires the fall of the uh, um, Ottoman Empire, the fall of, that has been a, something very painful for Islamic countries to have come to terms with. 
you know, it's in a way it's almost seen as because their identity was wrapped up in that. A- absolutely. Uh huh. That's that's my sense of why some you know why there's just been this um, another reason why there there's been this huge reaction against modernity from certain segments of the Western world, um, and and you know I think too there is a sense that in many ways Western values not I'm not talking about um, the humanitarian values we have, but you know they look around and see our materialism, our you know our sexual mores, our, our many of our um, uh, you know many Western values are not that great. You know, they're <laughs> and they're exaggerated through the the media and the television yes. that they see. Yes, and so so you know the the sense that it's you know it's not all that you know it's not all that what it's cracked up to be so i i agree i totally agree with what you're saying um so that's a that <laughs> presents so that then sounds like an accurate representation of the difficulty that islam and muslims face in embracing a global uh some kind of global, uh, uh, why can't we all get along idea. I don't necessarily think that it's about why can't we get along. It's why, do we, do we really want to have TVs everywhere? Do we really, and I'm not saying that Muslims don't embrace that. Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of materialistic, uh, you know, materialism in the Muslim world too. But there are certain segments of the Muslim population, not necessarily the fundamentalist ones, that look, look at our values in, in, a, in a larger sense. The, the economic inequality that were the, um, so just some of the um, materialistic pursuits and, and think, well, there's something in our tradition that we, we, there's something in a traditional lifestyle, there's something in a, you know, a God-centered life that is meaningful for us and we don't wanna, we don't wanna give that up necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true of spiritual people everywhere. You know, I mean, I think we all, to one degree or another, look at what's going on around us and think, well, this isn't. Is that all there is? Is yeah. that all there is? And is this something that I really? Is this? Is this? Am I? I. I don't. You know, buy into every single secular humanist value that I see coming down the pike, or I wouldn't be. You know, I wouldn't be doing spiritual practice. I wouldn't be doing. Right. And I think that's true of probably everyone in the room to a greater or lesser extent. Wow. Well, Kathy, I'm so glad you brought that up, and I'm so glad for the way you responded, because <coughs> we also can't project our, uh, just our kumbaya version of um, uh, how we wish things were when there are objective differences in how the different peoples and faith traditions see themselves. And that gets to what you were saying also, that there's, there is a real conflict that goes back to the battle between Christendom and Islam going back 1,400 years, the back and forth along the boundaries up to the gates of Vienna and up to the Iberian Peninsula and push them back, and here they come. And, push, and we're living in that 1,400-year reality too, uh, way beyond our lifetimes. Huh, wow. Um, Rich? I need a theological clarification. My, my understanding is that there's always been one version of the Torah that has been transmuted over the <coughs> centuries and, and copied religiously by the scribes. First of all, is that true? Um, uh, yes and no. 
um, uh, critical editions of the Torah look at the earliest versions that we have from starting, the Dead Sea Scrolls are our earliest versions, then we also look at the Greek translation from earlier than the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are in the primary language, and if you, take, if, you, if you look at something called the Biblia Hebraica, it has copious notes saying, it's so interesting, this edition uses this line here, and this edition uses this line here. So the answer is, there's a lot of textual variations. However, the text has been fixed for a long time, okay, so for 15, 1,700 years. So if we look at a scroll in, in, in uh, Jerusalem... At, at this point, if you look at a Torah scroll any in the world, it, the world it'll be the same. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the but it was a long process to get to that. Got it. So the second question has to do with the Koran. And I thought I heard you say earlier that there had been more than one version of the Koran. In the very, very early days of Islam, this is like 10 to 15 years before, after the Prophet died, um, there were variants. There was... I, I'm not going to get the... It's a, it's a rather obscure um, uh, part of Islamic history, but there were tribes who had their own variants of and slightly different... Um, it was slightly different dialect, I believe. Um, I'm looking at him because he knows a lot about this stuff. And, and what, the third caliph, Uthman, um, gathered them all, uh, gathered, you know, gathered up all of the variants, and rather brutally, apparently, I, I, I used to think, oh, this man was a hero, he codified the Quran, but actually um, was really suppressed any sort of um, other version, any sort of variant understanding. Um, and so since then, which I'm, I'm not, I don't have my list of dates with me, but it, it was, Shortly, within 15 years after the Prophet died, which was 632, I think. So, you know, within in that range of time, um, in the seventh century, it was it was a done deal. You, wow. you have to remember that the Quran was not a textual revelation; it was an oral and aural revelation. It was revealed as sound, as voice, as recitation. And that's the way it was transmitted. It was spoken, not written. The prophet didn't write it down and then hand it out. He, he recited it um, directly as it, he was receiving it. And then it would be memorized by the hearers. And the story is that, that the early revelations, they were written on palm leaves and, and bones and potsherds. You know, they were writing them down. And then it would be passed around and transmitted and people would recite them in prayer. And then eventually, the attempt to gather all of these um, versions together and, and settle on a, you know, one single version and to, to really to make it a text. Um, and that happened, according to what Kuna said, in a very short period of time, certainly relative to the Jewish process of canonization and the Christian process of canonization. Many, many, you know, the archaeology is unearthed. Um, uh, Gnostic Gospels, texts that didn't make it into the canon. There was a long process of, of um, <clears throat> harsh, you know, um, and uh, bitter uh, decision about what's orthodox and what's heterodox. Ortho meaning straight and hetero meaning other. Um, 
which is different what it means now. Um, I know, think about it. <laughs> you're heterosexual and you're straight? No, you're orthosexual. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Heterosexual is the two others. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know, I'm just having some fun. Um, okay, does that answer your question, Rich? But all three traditions in different paces went through this process, and it was a bitter process often. Uh, and and, and uh, Patricia... I think that's a beautiful segue into what we had originally planned to do this um, this class. And we'll get to it. Good. Uh, however, I, I <laughs> however. No, no, really. No, this is an important however. How are we going to acknowledge the heart of the matter with the yes. other right. if yes. we don't un also understand this stuff? So I think they have to go together, Patricia. I, I, that's yeah. why I said what I said at first. Yes, and you know that we're on the same page. Yeah. Speaking as the mystic, who knows that the light comes for everyone and is one light. You know, Rumi says that expansion and contraction are like the two wings of a bird, and you need both to fly. And if expansion is the opening into the oneness that holds all these traditions, and contraction is dealing with all these nitpicky things, um, but like a heartbeat, if the heart's only contracted, right. you die. If it's only expanded, you die. And you right. need you have to have right, and so maybe we've been doing this for a little while now, and now it's time we'll to do this. Not yet. Not, <laughs> not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. We we will. Hey, there's two of us. <laughs> two against one. We time. will. <laughs> we will. But there were more people who were. Uh, uh, I didn't want to cut off the chain of uh, questions. So Harris. I know. I know. So oh, I'm going to get to you third. Uh, uh, ha I will. Harris. Okay, there's plenty of reasons not to be particularly hopeful. Okay, so about... I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this subject matter with whatever, but when I look at... Because we looked at Muhammad in a political way. When I look at our political system, and I see 50 people on one side, of the aisle and 50 on the other, and there is a vote on a particular issue. There's no dissent. There's 50 people on one side voting one way and 50 on the other. They're not voting with their heart. So, um, what was the point? Um, so, if Americans would like to show solidarity with some Islamic principles, it's very hard to do that. It's not set up to do that. Hmm? If, it, if there's religious Islamic whatever, it's hard for them to say, hey, I like this aspect of the American culture. So there's not that, there's a lot less opportunities because of the, the, the structure of that. Um, I'll give you one example, uh, and you, you might know about it. And 
and I don't know about it, but just as an example, would be um, where uh, in Islam, certain financial in investments are taboo, and other financial investments are encouraged. <coughs> if we agree to that ourselves, as myself, say I agree that yes, we should stay away from tobacco, or we should stay away from this with our investments or that, I'm really not going to move forward on it, even though it's a good idea and it sits well with me. So the point is that certain aspects of our culture will sit well with certain people from the other side, and vice versa, but it seems like we're not allowed to have agreement on it because of the wider cultures we come from. When you say our culture, it sounds to me as if you're assuming Western, there aren't millions of Western. Muslim Americans who are integrated into American culture. Well, yeah, I, I, go ahead. Uh, so, the American experiment, which I am a, still 100% in favor of and plan to fight hard for in the next four years. Um, no, seriously, the American experiment that it's possible for different people, if they accept certain principles of democratic life, they, but they, that we can do this. We can live in the same country, including millions of Muslim Americans. Um, to do that requires a give up on the part of each culture that participates. The give up is that sort of sovereignty over our way of doing things. Right? right? You get to continue to do that in your private life, but not in your civic life, because you're part of a pluralistic society. There are m millions of Muslim Americans who are being acculturated to that idea. America is part, why America has been such a gift to the world in this regard is because we keep figuring out, if we can keep doing this, how to keep living together despite a diversity. And so that uh, the U.S. has been, Israel is not the laboratory of religious creativity in the Jewish world. The U.S. is. We export that to Israel um, because of the problems of religion and state there and the control that uh, uh, the, the, so um, uh, there's an intense amount of creativity going on among spiritually and passionate Muslims in the U.S as they absorb American values. That's where I'm hopeful. Do you understand what I'm saying? The, the culture clash is real, but can we find a way here in the United States? Uh, go ahead. There's a mosque in, I believe, Washington, D.C., uh, a progressive mosque or women lead prayer where, um, where homosexuals are welcome, where I believe the imam is um, openly gay. I mean, it, there's lots of, and, and there are groups of progressive Muslims. There's actually, they're called progressive Muslims. You can join their Facebook page. <laughs> and, and this approach is going to be viciously and completely rejected by the folks who think that that's, that's destroying their tradition rather than transforming it. And that's in both other religions as well. Exactly. There are Christians who want a theocracy in this country right now. Right. I hope you don't feel like I'm undercutting you at all in those comments. And, and I also don't use the right words all the time, but just so I'm not totally one-sided, 
I think that if, uh, I don't know the word Muslims, but uh, um, just regular old folk Muslims right. <laughs> uh, visited with us mm -hmm. and like in this and class and right and now and a handful of us mm -hmm. visited with them it would all be copacetic it would all be fine there is no problem whatsoever even if we got into debates it would all be cool so um, I don't know how to that on the World right. scale can occur, mm -hmm. but that's what I believe from my experience. Beautiful. Would yes, especially if we eat together and babysit for each other's kids. <laughs> Absolutely. Bread. Absolutely. And so we are not going to solve global issues in this class, but hopefully we will learn enough about Islam and Christianity and Judaism to be able to make the bridge and go talk to somebody and start the conversation. That is the level upon which I hope we can operate here. So I, I thank you for saying that. Kathy? Um, if you read the Bible, and you read it in yeah, yeah, um, yeah. a synagogue and the church, there are plenty of extremely violent passages. Oh where my God. Anything <laughs> yeah. that is at least as bad as what ISIS is doing or anybody in the Middle East. They slew their enemies, the blood flowed in the street. They're much more, there's much more violence within the Hebrew Christian canon than in the Quran. Oh, really? Yes. And we, that, that's our sacred book. I'm just yeah. Hold on. Did you hear that, everybody? Is that so, Karuna? That is absolutely, he's absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. There's a yeah, much he's... less violence, um, certainly on the, the level of story, and certainly on the level of, you know, I mean, no one is going out in the Quran and slewing, slaying their you know, slaying whole populations. Right, right. So at St. Gregory's, we did an introduction to Islam, and we, I opened the class by passing out um, some of the, the terror passages of the Quran, and they were the worst, ugliest, most vile, violent passages, and I had everyone go around and read them, and they were shocked and appalled that this could be in the Quran, and then I told them these are all verses from the Bible. <laughs> Well, so, good pedagogy. So, so we, we do have to be careful in, in, in that sense. And, and I, I, I want to throw in the mix here that the Muslim Americans that I know, that I went to college with, uh, most of them see our American pluralistic society as the natural evolution of the model that Muhammad initiated. That the constitution of Medina was really an early experiment in pluralistic democracy, where Christians and Jews were given rights alongside Muslims. Um, still, Islam was a kind of umbrella, but it was an experiment to how can we include other people and give rights to other groups um, and actually protect each other and pledge to each other. And so, so there's a model there that, that many Muslims would say, if you follow the trajectory, the evolutionary trajectory of that initial experiment, it would look a lot like what we're doing in America today. So this is very, oh, you didn't finish. And, and, Karuna, did, and Karuna didn't finish. Did I just you? had one other point. Much of what's feeding ISIS and the radical Islamic terrorists are disaffected young men who have turned away from humanism because they feel it's too vacuous. And uh, that's a huge And they don't have jobs. Yeah, um, so uh, the way Matthew expressed that, uh, I, I needed to amplify for a minute. You were just saying, 
What, what did you just say? It'll <laughs> pop right back in my head. The Constitution of Medina? Oh, right. So this is how religious revivals work for, of all kinds. You go back to your original story and you retell it in, in your own image. Right? One of the things we haven't talked about yet is how Abraham gets treated as the first Jew, the first Muslim, the first, you know, it's like, it's fascinating. So, in modernity, uh, Christians, seeking Christians, many seeking Christians, are going back to say, what would Jesus do? And try to jump across all the history and get back to the heart of their tradition as they interpret it, but not by abandoning the story, but by reinvesting in the story. So, similarly, some American Muslims, some are feeling also the, both the permission and the duty to reinvest in their story. It's There's what a, I do all the time. There's a whole movement of Quran-only Muslims. Yes. That wow. where, because actually the Quran is, is pretty, I mean, there are one or two passages that you have to, you know, work with a little bit. Um, but for the most part, I mean, we did a comparison. In fact, in one of my classes, they were comparing um, divorce laws in the Quran and the New Testament. And the, the professor who was doing the Christian side said, boy, this is really, this is really something. This is really progressive. There's, there, there's actually, and I mean, you can mine the Quran for amazing statements on social justice, amazing mystical ideas. I mean, I mean it is a, it is a, there's a lot of hellfire and brimstone too for, for my taste. I'm not going to whitewash that. But to, um, you know, it's an, it's an awe-inspiring book and a, I would have no problem, you know, as a Quran only, you know. Wow. So if I were, that, a, so if I were a liberal Muslim, I'd have this gold mine, just like I feel like I have in my sacred tradition where I don't feel obligated to take it all, um, but to search for the parts that I think are the most elevating and the most... Uh, well, and uh -huh. this has been going on, this even, even this has been going on for centuries. There are sects in Turkey, the Alevis and the Bektashis, who don't pray. Who don't fall, who don't do Bektashis will drink alcohol. Yeah, yeah, there it, it's a it there there's a lot of this it has happened. Oh, so it's a big world out there. It's a big world out there. Joan, sorry, Joan's waiting and then Susan. Okay. Yeah, I want to distinguish between my intellectual question and really thank you for, for bringing us back to the heart question as well. And I think we could actually maybe develop here in our conversation some tools to locate each of those, um, I just sort of kind of jotted it down that, that if we could, each time we speak, kind of locate the political or popular kind of aspect of what we're saying versus the theological intellectual side. Um, and, and again, they're not all dialectics, they're smushy. But um, for example, when we say Torah, some of us who are Jewish and who love the practices of, of Judaism love the Torah, but I have certainly read passages that appall me, passages where God tells a, a leader to go in and kill all the women, children, animals, you know, everything, just decimate. And, and, and it's hard for me to have the kind of reverence that I'm supposed to have in those moments. And yet, I can step back emotionally. My heart says when I'm being Jewish that I love being Jewish. How do I explain that to other people? How do I embrace wow. the encounter of the other and be responsible for that? 
I, I need to say, okay, this, there's this popular understanding, this kind of a heartfelt amha aretz, we call it, you know, feet on the ground, person of the earth, who just loves being Jewish. And then there's the intellectual part that where we have to parse it out and say, yeah, some of what we think we're being directed by God to do is, it has got to become metaphorical. It has got to become an interpretation, a school of thought, a theological evolution in modern times, located, again, in the context of our intellectual abilities <laughs> and our higher minds. <laughs> um, and, and not to say that they're uh, opposed to each other because there's so much interweaving. And, and, and each of, of, of you who are speaking to us there from the head of the table and each of us who are listening, I'm sure there's that same moment every time we're listening. Part of our, our heart says yes and part of our mind says no. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa. And, and, and yeah, I thank you for kind of continuing. Thank you, Joan. That was really well, well articulated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Susan? So in light of, I just have to say this, in light of retelling the stories in our own image, in all three, I don't hear the stories in the image of the mothers and the women. Mm -hmm. They have not been retold to my satisfaction or mm -hmm. even much at all. It's part of what I have to grapple with every time I come to a Torah study class or I hear the context of all of this, including the, um, the thing at the Met, seem to be in the patriarchal context of war, fighting, conquering, etc., etc., etc. I, you know, Carol and I have done a tiny, tiny little bit. We're working on it in the voice of our mothers. There have to be more. We need to start retelling this in the voice of women. Thank you. That was now. Have, have you been in my Torah study class the last three weeks? No, because I think the time is so bad. I'm sorry. And we're, I feel bad. We're only doing the women right now. Well, then I'll <laughs> Why didn't you call me? You can listen online. They're really great. Sorry. But it's I, I think this would be a really good moment to um, bring one of the poems that I um, brought. Perfect. That I have to share. Uh, it's actually it's a it's a poem by Rumi, and it tells um, it doesn't actually tell the story of Zuleika, but Zuleika is the I guess it's Potiphar's wife. Um, she's the the Islamic version of Potiphar's wife in the story of Joseph or Yusuf. And, um, you all remember the story? And she tries no, to, not necessarily. She tries to seduce Joseph, and, and he denies her, and so she, she sort of cries out that he's rape. tried to rape her, and then he's thrown in prison by her husband. Well, in the Islamic version of this story, <laughs> yeah. um, it's actually pretty cool, because um, at, at that point, she, it, it doesn't, she, it, it, it's seen that she's lying, and um, her husband actually forgives her. Forgives her, and um, she and the, but there's a lot of gossip around, and all the all the ladies in uh, I, what what city was it? I can't remember. Um, are are talking about her, so she invites them all to a great banquet, and she gives them all lemons and knives, and then she has Joseph Yusef walk by, and they all cut themselves because they are just overwhelmed <laughs> by 
by his beauty. And now, and he said, you know, and they're all like to, totally going on. And he says, maybe I'd better go to prison after all. <laughs> but this is not about that story. I just wanted to give that as background. This is about, um, this is about the mystic longing that Zuleika feels. And she's often, in Sufism, she's often seen, her, her love of Joseph is often seen as this is the Sufi's love of God. So here's, here's a, here's a um, poem by Rumi about Zuleika. I'm going to see if I can make my way to it. And I'll just um, read William Chittick's um, understanding at the end of this because there's a long portion of the poem that may not be understandable otherwise. These lines are a key to understanding all of Rumi's imagery. If he praises, he is praising union with the beloved. If he blames, he is blaming separation. Zuleika made everything a name from jo for, for Joseph, from seed to incense. She hid his names in those names, but she gave knowledge of the secret to her confidants. If she said, the wax has become soft from the fire, she meant, the friend has become warm with me. If she said, the moon has risen, look. And if she said, that willow branch has become green. And if she said, the leaves are rustling beautifully. And if she said, the incense is burning sweetly. And if she said, the rose has told a secret to the nightingale. And if she said, the king has revealed his love for Shanaz, and if she said, how auspicious is fortune, and if she said, shake out the bedclothes, and if she said, the water carrier has brought water, and if she said, the sun has risen, and if she said, last night they cooked a potful, or the vegetables were done to perfection, and if she said, the bread has no salt, and if she said, the heavens are revolving backwards, and if she said, my head has begun to ache. And if she said, my headache is better. If she praised something, she was praising his embrace. If she blamed something, she was blaming separation from him. If she piled up a hundred thousand names, her aim and her desire was always Joseph. Oh, wow, what a great poem. In Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, everything, every word of Torah is considered to be the name of God, the ineffable name of God. Every story is just the name of God. This is the Jewish mystical understanding too, because all that we desire is union with the One. And so, in Jewish mysticism, and we will we we'll talk about the Shekhinah, There's it it it's almost always in the metaphor of heterosexual love, um, but it also transcends it. And so, the Shekhinah, which is the feminine presence, the pathway for union between the feminine presence and the masculine presence of God is 
in the tree of life, Joseph, uh, who is known as the righteous one, not because he, um, uh, not because he was purely, it means more to the uh, in Jewish mysticism. Joseph becomes an archetype because Joseph showed sexual restraint with Potiphar, but then also knew how to interpret Pharaoh's dreams so that they saved seven years of uh, produce so that then they could dispense it and keep feed everyone for seven years. He's the one who knows how to contain his energy mm-hmm. and when to release it. Mm-hmm. And Yesod in the Tree of Life is actually uh, the phallus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jacob, Joseph is the phallus in Jewish mysticism. Uh, but it's the phallus that knows just how and when to release the seed into the world, which will be embraced by the feminine Shekhinah. Anyway, I was thinking about all that while you were reading, because um, Rumi is, um, in terms of time, is at the same time as these mystical writings are being done in Provence and the Iberian Peninsula and North Africa and in Yemen too, I suppose. And uh, so that's fun to think about. There was, there was such a flowering of mystic, um, mm-hmm. mystical poetry and mystical energy in that time. In the Christian tradition during that period? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and then following, I'm thinking particularly of Spain during the Conviviencia when these three traditions were living alongside each other and were, were sharing with each other these mystical currents. Um, and then out of that, you get the flowering of John of the Cross and Teresa so of Avila. That's and, right. Yeah, and you that's see, right. when you read Teresa writing about the interior castle, um, which is the, the, the multifaceted nature of the human soul and the, the journey um, through the soul into the center where, where the beloved, where the king, where the Lord is, um, and, and there are the seven mansions that one passes through, and it mirrors the seven levels of the nafs, of the ego, oh. and Sufism. Um, you see a very similar map of the mystical journey through the interior of the human person that cuts across traditions, uh, expressing itself in the, these different languages. Ah, ah yes, and the seven, the seven lower sfirot, or attributes in the tree of life, are the only ones that are travelable by humans. Mm-hmm. You can't ascend higher. There are ten... But uh, oh, but uh, wow. it's the seven that represent the known face of God. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then you go into the area called the place where beyond concept, beyond any possibility. And in, Chris, in Christian mysticism, um, it, it tends to be uh, Christocentric. It's Christ-languaged. Um, and so sometimes it is just, the lang- it's theocentric. It's longing for the beloved union with God in the bridal chamber of the heart, but often it's Christ, and Christ is the union um, of the human and divine. Jesus is seen as the union of the human and divine, and the way the Christian mystics play with this idea of incarnation, of God becoming incarnate, um, it's not just a a one-off thing that happens in Jesus, it's something that continues flowing out from Jesus through his mystical body. And so those who walk his path become a part of the mystical body, which is the body of God incarnate. And so the vocation of those disciples is to continue incarnating God in human life. Um, and so there are some beautiful verses from mystics like, um, like Meister Eckhart, who says, uh, 
what good is it for me if Mary is full of grace, if I am not also full of grace? He says, uh, this then is the, he says, we are all meant to be mothers of God. Mother of God is one of the traditional titles given to Mary. That she's, He says, we are all meant to be mothers of God, for God is always needing to be born. Um, this, then, this then is the fullness of time when the Son of God is begotten in me. And so he sees that work of incarnation and of God birthing as, as, as the human vocation. Um, so uh, you often see, um, I'll try to bring in a poem from St. Simeon, the, the new theologian, um, in the early centuries of the church. But he talks about um, this realization where he says, I move my hand and my hand is Christ. My foot and my foot is the whole of Christ, for Christ is indivisible and the fullness is in every part. And he says, do, do, do these words sound blasphemous? Then open your heart. Um, oh, do these words sound blasphemous? Then open your heart. <laughs> wow, what a great, oh, I want to remember this. <laughs> it's St. Simeon Neotheologos, or the New Theologian. He'll bring it. Yeah, I'll bring in the full poem. Wow. So, Judah Halevi. didn't announce it to your mother, it did not announce it to Mary. If the angel did not announce it to your mother, mother then it did not announce it, it to Mary. It did not announce it to Mary. And, and, the, and then Mevlana Rumi says, he says that uh, this body is like Mary, uh, and each of us contains a Jesus. Who is not in labor, holy labor? All creation is. Wow. Oh, that's like Knesset Yisrael. Um, is the the, the the people Israel in Kabbalah are are understood to be the receiving feminine presence for the divine, and we are in a sacred marriage with the divine, and that sacred marriage is what gets replayed every Friday night when we welcome the Sabbath. Um, yes, Susan. How or if or was this ever, this language, this poetry, ever wedded to a government? <laughs> there, there certainly, uh, you know, I, well, I'm thinking of, there, there were sultans who were, you know, dervishes within Sufi orders, and there are stories of that. Um, and I think I can give you an answer to that. Um, I don't know if there's a direct link, but if it sounds blasphemous, open your heart. It's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like, because it's, it's, it, because the answer's not like, so in Kabbalah, in medieval Jewish understanding, King David yes. is the warrior and king by day and the poet and lover by night. Uh, he's the sweet singer of Israel, as it says, and at night, the Kabbalah in the Zohar says King David would get up at midnight, take down his harp, and write songs, love songs. And then at, go back to sleep and then rise at dawn in the light of day, do the business of monarchy, right? The leadership. And so um, that's not an answer to your question, but it's where I, my mind went, which is this idea that we're all of it, right? We, to be a full person, you need to both be the night, in the nighttime, in the receptive time, and in the daytime. And King David is used in that way as the model of the um, 
male, the integrated male figure who who is both the the weeps and sings and writes poems and rules the country. Uh, and was that manifested at the time in the way things were run and well, the people and the culture? I don't know enough. Um, except I don't know enough. Well, Kathy, you want to respond to that? I do. Uh, Muhammad and Medina. Right. You know, the model of that same integration. Exactly. You know, in terms of he spent in terms of putting Medina together and bringing the tribes together, which no one had ever done before. There was a warring period in that. Mm. And then as he aged, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm reading is that as he aged, he came to a point where he said, we, we, have, to have, we have to have peace. And, and he took, he would stop, and, and much of the Quran happened after he had taken power, right? He continued to channel. And to, yes, and to find ways mm. to rule his people mm. peacefully and bring them together. And I also need to say that from what I'm reading, one of his primary um, advisors was his most beloved wife. Yes. Mm -hmm. She was also one of the primary transmitters of the hadith, the, the, the tradition, Aisha, yes. So um, he was crying. And, and, I, th and I, think, um, I think, too, the... Um, you know, one of the things that is said about the Prophet, one of the hadith that I really love is he, he said the, mo the things that were most beloved to him were prayer, perfume, and the company of women. <laughs> and he also said that paradise, I said this before, yes. is at the feet of the mothers. Yes. Yeah. There's a book that you would like called, um, by Tamam Khan called Untold, and it's, Un this, Un Untold, and it's the stories of the wives of the Prophet. She does, them in, she does them in, um, uh, she, she's part of my, my, my Sufi, Sufi order, order. Mm -hmm. and um, she does them in, uh, I've heard her give readings, she, she does, um, she tells stor the story and then she does these lovely little poems mm -hmm. that, that uh, go along with them, really, really mm -hmm. a lovely book. She's got a new one on, on Fatima. Oh, okay. I'm persuaded, personally, right now, that the cutting edge of our societal challenge, not to mention, I won't extend it globally because I don't want to, I don't know, is the full reclamation of the woman's voice next to the males. And I feel like our, our recent presidential election was like a giant psychodrama yeah. of the battle that we're in for that to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about like a, a collective psychodrama I totally agree. um and uh so we have so so susan just keep bringing it up I okay good good and what's the name of the book kathy that you're reading it's called the short history of islam by, by karen armstrong yeah. oh karen armstrong oh, yeah. that's on your uh, uh bibliography wasn't it I, my, if it wasn't i should be i'm pretty I, I sure think the, uh, i think oh, i gave her it's biography too yeah, okay. I, ha I, oh, I have this. You, you have, have uh, a copy. Uh, Karen Armstrong's Muhammad, uh, Prophet for Our Time. Right. Yes. Oh, okay, so both Karen Armstrong books. Yeah, okay. both of them. Now, we're, almo we're almost out of time. A short history is what it's called. A short history of Islam. We're almost out of time. A, a little bit of Judah HaLevi. Mm -hmm. Judah HaLevi was born in Tudela on the borders of Christian Spain in, in Iberia. And uh, he was a physician and a philosopher, and he was an amazing guy whose dream was to get to the land of Israel, which he did before he died. A very pro 
I think it's. I think we say he made it. He died in Yaffa. He barely got there. But the dream was what drove him. So two brief uh, uh, poems. His he wrote in Hebrew, but he also wrote in Arabic. His famous, most famous book is called the Kuzari, which is the story about how uh, a, a Jewish, uh, the king of the Khazars, wants to decide which religion to convert his people to, and. Judah Halevi writes in a piece where he, where he argues in a form of a dialogue that Judaism is the one, you know, which is a typical medieval dialogue. But he knew, it, this was in the golden age of Spain. This is when everybody was, in the intellectual elite, was talking to each other and studying each other's work. Uh, so he has a, a poem called Ya Ana Emtza Acha. God, Ya is the name of God, like Ya, hallelujah. It's not, it's, it's hard to translate, it's impossible to translate. Where shall I find you? And this Hebrew poetry was all inspired by Arabic poetry. Its meters, its formats. Yah, where shall I find you? Your place is lofty and secret. And where shall I not find you? The whole earth is full of your glory. Right? And then it, there's several beautiful verses such as, you are found in my innermost heart, and yet you fixed the earth's boundaries. I have sought to come near you. I have called to you with all my heart. And when I went out towards you, I found you coming towards me. Um, the heavens and the legions proclaim your dread without a sound. But can God really dwell among humans? Their foundations are dust. What can they conceive of God? Yet you, O Holy One, make your home where they sing your praises and your glory. The living creatures standing on the summit of the world praise your wonders. Your throne is above all our heads, and yet it is you who carry us all. And that kind of beautiful. Mm. And then this four, what do you call it? A quatrain? Four mm. lines? I'll read it in Hebrew first. Avdezman avdei avadim hem. Eved Adonai hu levad chofshi. Alkein the slaves of time are the slaves of a slave. Only the slave of the infinite, God, is free. Therefore, while others seek their portion, Adonai is my portion, says my soul. And that's the whole poem. The slaves of time are the slaves of a slave. <laughs> That's from uh, the 12th century in Spain. Um, oh, it's time. Thank you all for ta doing this dance with us. Um, oh. I think because it's time to go and people have schedules, we won't end with a chant today, but with a breath. So, coming to silence. Just a breath. And returning to the breath, just for yeah, a brief moment. Remembering in the breath that we're always already one. 
the heartbeat, we're always already one. Underneath the debate, we're one. Maybe in the debate, we're one. Amen. Thank you. Amen. 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 I mean, amen. Amen. Oh, man. 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 Oh